Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Talkin' CRM, where we talk to the rock stars of digital marketing, CX, data science, and, of course, CRM. I'm Colin Brogan, and with me, as always, is Managing Director of Winning by Design, Megan Hewer. Megan, how are you? Hey, Colin, good. I like the groovy music. Uh, yes, it's actually another creation by our house band, Adrenaline. Um, and I do want to give them a plug and maybe play a tune later because their their first album of original music has come out on Spotify. Oh, exciting! And I can't get some of these tunes out of my head, so uh, I'm doing all we can to promote the uh, the Talking CRM family, literally. <laughs> Love it. Well, congratulations to Adrenaline. Yes, absolutely. Um, what's happening in your world? Anything new and exciting? Yeah. So this was a this was a big week actually for Winning by Design. Um, we published a new research paper. Um, it was co-authored by Julie Prasovsky, who leads the customer success practice, and um, Jocko Vanderkoy, the co-founder of Winning by Design. And I think it's pretty cool. It's talking about making customer success into a profit center. But um, for those of you who didn't think there would be math in marketing or customer success, um, this is the math part of it, where the paper essentially outlines how to understand how small improvements to customer retention, customer engagement, um, and customer expansion lead to exponential returns on your company's revenue. It's a really, it's very easy to understand. Um, and I think it's a really great approach to thinking about why, you know, we shouldn't be looking at customer relationships um, as anything, but the most important work that we do in any business. So I, I was excited to see that come out this week. We can uh, maybe put a link in comments when we share our, our video. So how about you, Colin? What's new in your world this week? Well, you're not the only superstar in the Talking CRM panel. Um, turns out I'm on a new, featured in a new white paper by Uxpressia. I don't know if you're uh, familiar with the company, but they're a large journey mapping um, um, software company based in Europe um, on journey mapping and, and of all things, banking and finance. So right. uh, I'm excited. We have a blurb. They have a panel of about 20 different experts with different points of view. And um, who knows, we, we might um, see some of their folks on the show in the near future. Oh, excellent. Well, congratulations. That's exciting. Well, thanks. Um, but let's get to our big show today. And it really is a big show. Um, today, we have with us one of the pioneers of NPS, or Net Promoter Score, and founder of OCX Cognition, Richard Owen. Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. Hi, Megan. How are you? Great. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's, it's great to be here. Thanks. Um, well, to tee it off, I mean, the first thing that I want to discuss is what's near and dear to my heart is the use of um, actual data, right, and managing customer relationships. And um, turns out you've been doing some work in the background to do just that for predictive modeling and for managing, um, managing customers. Yes. Yeah, so uh, as you know, I mean, spent the last 15 years sort of obsessed with the idea of customer experience and whether or not it actually can make any difference to companies. And I, I thought the, your opening comments were interesting that uh, people are starting to look at the degree of leverage that you can get from changing things in the post-sale environment, which is something I think we've always, I think, known or, or believed in, but is still not, I think, as surprisingly well adopted by businesses we might as we might all think, given, given that there is so much financial leverage. 
Um, one of the things that uh, when we look back now at all this time we've spent looking at customer experience and net promoter score, one of the most striking results we got from our own research was how few programs or initiatives actually make any real difference to companies. So companies go out and they say, well, we're measuring customer experience. It's at the heart of our business. It's on our blah, blah. You know, it's on our shareholder report every year. And we invest all these dollars and we survey customers all the time. And then absolutely nothing happens as a consequence. There's no economic outcome associated with it. And the temptation is to think, well, that's a, you know, a flawed approach. Maybe customer experience isn't as valuable as we think. Maybe we've got the wrong methodologies. It turns out it's really got very little to do with that at all. And it's got a lot to do with underlying data problems that businesses have, which sounds like an odd thing to say. But at the end of the day, they're not looking at information that's terribly useful and they're not doing anything with it when they look at it. And so we're not getting the results we want. That seems like a big challenge for us all. Um, when we talk about this, I mean, what, what kinds of data are, are folks depending on that maybe they shouldn't be? And, and what kinds of data should they be depending on more? Well, it's interesting. It's worth casting back a little bit to when Net Promoter Score was created, for example, and saying, what, what was it all about? And I think for a lot of people, it seemed to be instantly equated with the idea of surveying. Well, Net Promoter Score is the answer to a survey question. Well, Net Promoter Score is actually a mechanism for segmenting customers. We wanted to divide customers into three different groups who just happened to behave different economically in very distinct ways, right? We had the good guys, the white hats, the promoters, and they are worth a lot of money. We got the, the bad guys, the detractors, if you like, the black hats, and they're actually negative economic drain on the company. And we got the passives who just don't care one way or another. And we, we knew these three groups behaved differently and wanted a convenient way to identify them. How do you paint the targets? So we used surveying. But surveying was a very clunky method to do it and has tired, exhausted itself over the last 20 years, because essentially fewer and fewer people are responding to surveys, the saturation, there's sample bias getting introduced because the smaller and smaller numbers, there's really a degree of fatigue to it. And so people lost the track. They lost the point of it all. What was the point? Well, it was to segment these customers, not to do surveys. So the data quality has gotten worse and worse. And now we have people who essentially aren't really learning anything from what they're doing. And they're saying, well, you know, MPS isn't working. The numbers don't make sense. We're not learning anything. Well, the problem isn't the, the methodology. The problem is that they're wedded to this rather antiquated sort of buggy whip approach that they're stuck with. And to your, to your question directly, Colin, what's, what's new? Well, all kinds of data are new. We're, we're in an era where companies have vast data resources compared to where they were 10 years ago. They're just not quite sure how to tap into them. Yeah, I'd, um, I mean, I'd agree with that. And I'll let um, Megan jump in and comment. But um, just, uh, just in my experience, I've seen a big transformation in data and data accessibility um, and availability over the last maybe even five, maybe two years with um, DM first DMPs and now with um, customer data platforms. All this data is ripe for the picking, right? It's ripe for the picking, but it's... All, all that data is, is an incredible asset, but companies are struggling with it. And they're struggling with it because it's disorganized. It's not elegantly linked together. You know, you have a whole bunch of customer records in support and a whole bunch of customer records in sales, but they're not even linked in a useful way. We don't even know they're the same customer. 
Um, there's completely different ways to organize that data and even archive that data. And so the joining up the organization of the data is, is a formidable challenge for companies. And I think that's the next big problem. We're, we're getting better at collecting it. We're, we're storing it. But how we organize it and make use out of it and draw insights out of it, it's, it's a formidable problem for businesses. Well, and, and Richard and Colin, you two just both put me in mind of, you know, back in our sat metrics days, right? And we were working with B2B companies, which is, which is where I spend a lot of my time. Um, we always said, it's not a sample, it's a census. You really need to hear from every one of them if you want to have the ability to do some of the segmentation, Richard, that you were talking about and to have that clarity into where you stand with that customer relationship. But of course, the problem is, you know, you were lucky if you got 30% of your customers to answer a survey. So um, as you said, the instrument did not, uh, didn't live up to um, the demand that you had as a business. And it occurs to me that what you're really talking about is the way that a company can use its data, its operational data, essentially to get to that census view of the status of its customer relationships. But unless you can bring those data points together and then analyze them and use that to take some kind of action, you might as well not bother. I mean, I talked to a, um, a company yesterday that doesn't say why customers call into their service line. So they have calls, they're taking actively resolving issues for customers, but they do not record what it is that customer called about. So their product people, their account managers, nobody knows, so nobody has that frontline information about the things they need to address. And it occurs to me that, you know, there's, there's sort of operational issues and data issues there, but, <clears throat> you know, what- No, that's right. Look, look the, the one thing we can't do is we can't go back in time and create data we, from the past, right? Mm -hmm. So businesses need to think in terms of the asset value of data, which has not always been top of mind. So in that example, why would you not want to expand that data set so that you understand it? Maybe today you don't have an obvious application for it, but thinking ahead, enriching that data is going to give you an asset that at some point in time is going to be useful. Mm -hmm. And I think we've been very casual about data. We've sort of said, oh, okay, well, we, we've solved today's problem. Let's not worry about it. Uh, smarter companies, and look, I think companies that were born, frankly, in the last decade, see data as an asset mm -hmm. and are constantly thinking about how they build it up and how they use it. Um, and, and if you don't do that, then at some point you wake up and realize, gosh, we, we've got missed out on five years of historical data that could have informed us in all kinds of interesting ways about our business. Uh, and, and now it's too late, right? You can't go back and sort of reinvent that. Yeah, and um, you know, why this is so fascinating is that we, we've lived in the world of data and we know that this information resides in different parts of the company and is now coming together. Um, but I think what people are starting to realize now is that you know, this first party data A is gonna be incredibly necessary when cookies go away and that's a whole different subject. Um, so I do see companies kind of building their database, but also, you know, um, how do we use that data in a practical way, right? So, you know, what are some of the cues that tells us um, how engaged or not engaged our customers are? Um, you know, how do we know who's um, you know, responsive within certain channels? And, you know, how do we know, you know, which of those customers have had um, adverse um, uh, customer service incidents, right? You know, when you put right. all those together, that's got to tell you something about, about your customer and, and what to do next. Well, there's some really good news here, and it's a, it's a fluke of the mathematics and customer behavior that's going to save us all. Uh, and, and it's the fact that relatively small numbers of things matter to customers. Now, 
we do a lot of things for our customers. We have complex journeys. We have lots of touch points. We have all these events. And, and even the notion of a journey is kind of a, a, an odd construct for us because customers don't go sequentially down this sort of road step by step. They iterate, they cycle, they go back and forward. So it sounds incredibly complicated. But for most companies, the ability to create a really loyal customer is going to hinge on a subset of critical activities that are performed at very, very high levels of execution. The problem companies typically have is, number one, they struggle to identify what those critical activities are relative to activities that are just hygienic. You, you got to kind of do them, but it's not going to be a leverage point. Number two, bit of a trickier problem, how do they calibrate what good is? And I like to tell the example of 30 odd years ago when I was in manufacturing, good was shipping a product in two weeks. You know, somebody got the product in a two week shipment cycle, they were pretty happy with you. Now, Amazon's trained everyone to think 24 hours is kind of a bit slow. And if you look at what goes on in, in place like uh, Korea, you know, it's next morning, sun up, the product show, shows up on your doorstep. So calibration matters because customers calibrate what they think is good performance. And if you're off on calibration, you're, you're way behind the curve. But if you can get that right, identify the handful of things that matter, calibrate them, then you've got a pretty simple formula for success. Now, execution is a ton of work, but most companies will find that a half dozen critical actions executed really well has a very high probability of creating happy customers. So follow up with that. What kind of, um, what kind of examples could you give up? <laughs> Well, let's go, let's go back to the simple one I just gave, which was um, manufacturing, right? So, um, you know, for personal computer manufacturing, it's always come down to two or three things. Ultimately, can you ship the product with an acceptable window? People's first experience with the product, they pull it out the box, they open it up, they push the power button, what happens? You know, can they get to a functional state fairly, in a fairly streamlined fashion? And then usually uh, first 30 day type of experience, does it develop a defect in 30 days, which from an engineering perspective is when most of the defects are likely to occur. You get through that period successfully, bingo. You probably skewed your probabilities of promoters significantly. Let, let's talk about SaaS as a good example. Another industry we look at a lot. How does SaaS work? Well, at, at the end of the day, there are two or three things that really matter in a SaaS company. The first one is, and you're gonna love this one, Sales expectations. If the customer has totally misaligned expectations at the point of sales, that's almost an irrecoverable situation. It really doesn't matter what you do with them. You're, you're stuck. And software is one of the few products in the world where the customer doesn't have really much of an idea what they bought when they bought it. It's not like a motor car. When you kind of have most of the information at your fingertips, SaaS products, like any software products, leap in the dark. So you have to get expectations in the zone that early life experience, call it implementation, onboarding, whatever you want, then becomes critical because that's where expectations are aligned with reality and the customer exits that period feeling good about what they bought or feeling like they were sold a bill of goods. And again, the latter is hard to recover from. You get those two things right and then by and large, you're way down the probability curve that you're going to have happy customers. Now, you can still mess up support. The product can still lack key features. There's a bunch of other things, right? 
But if you don't get the first two right, you're never going to save the situation. Yeah. And the point is that this is behavioral data. This is information that, that we capture, right? And it's, um, there are a few factors that matter. The rest is just noise. It's there for most companies. It's how they organize it, weight it. And ultimately, you can use that data to predict customer behavior. I just, you know, we just made that basic prediction. We said, look, do these two things right, and maybe we have a 90% chance of having a promoter. Okay, well, that's predictive science. You just solved the problem. Um, but companies need to recognize, and it was interesting, that example, because upstream problems matter a lot more than downstream, right? I, I thought Megan's comments about the study on you know, how much leverage you have from customer success is great. But with all due respect to customer success as a science, we're running around putting fingers in dikes here, right? I mean, most customer success professionals will tell you their job is, uh, you know, they're the cleanup people, right? They're not the people that make the mess. They're the janices going around cleaning up the mess. And a lot of companies will uh, quickly understand that the cost of resolving issues downstream is astronomical compared to the cost of avoiding them upstream. And so we, we have to sort of change our mindset. And I've watched customer success evolve as a very powerful industry. What surprises me is how much human capital we're throwing at a digital problem, right? We're sort of saying, let's hire a whole bunch of people to mop up a mess we created in sales or in implementation or in product development. And that just seems kind of odd, right? Why, why would we not be fixing the core problem as opposed to throwing bodies at trying to sort it out later? And I see Megan nodding her head in, in recognition. I, I, Richard, I, I couldn't agree more, right? I think it, it's, it is possible to know the things you need to get right, right? Early on in the relationship, as you're going through the customer making a decision, it's easy to know what things have to happen when they first start using whatever your product is, you know, if it's an actual product or if it's a service or whatever it is, you know what those things are. But I completely agree that most companies don't proactively and, and all quantitatively, really predictively identify what they are so that they know the few things that they in particular have to pay attention to. And then to your point, they feel much more comfortable sort of fixing the problem after they, even though they know it's going to happen, they're still more comfortable fixing it after it happens than preventing it up front. Um, it's sort of like we haven't learned the lesson of putting a seatbelt in a car. Um, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And, and one of my least favorite calls to get in my past life as an analyst was the company that called and said, I have a churn problem. I want to put in a save desk. Oh. <laughs> it made me so sad because I thought you could avoid having to corral everyone from the CEO to the janitor to help fix the customer problem at a late stage when in fact you're unlikely to fix it anyway and you're probably going to end up having to discount heavily to keep the customer sort of the cable business right um, when in fact if you'd simply identified whatever it is that went wrong in the expectations from the selling cycle or the implementation of the product or the delivery of the service whatever it was right you could have fixed that. And if you just fix it up front, you save all that time and money down the road. And yet to this day, I still see companies falling into exactly what you were describing. Um, I'd be curious to hear from you, Richard, because I think one of the things that people do struggle with here is, is change management, you know, and, and making cultural changes to think differently about the importance of preventing problems rather than solving them after they happen. What do you, what do you see as successful techniques companies are using to make some of those changes? Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I, look, I think it breaks down into two, two problems, essentially. One is 
can we persuade leadership of the nature of change that's required? And secondly, can we execute, right? And I think we, we all sort of understand the executional issues, sort of moving people around, changing priorities is gonna be extraordinarily difficult, but let's back up for a second. Why, why is it that, I mean, the role of leadership is there to essentially drive significant change in the enterprise, right? If not, what are they there for? And I think we do a poor job of persuading our leaders that there is a real financial case for change, right? And I think it was fascinating you said that the data is coming out and the leverage associated with churn. Well, that's far more likely to be persuasive than us sitting in a room and saying, well, the customer's always right. It's the customer, you know, still my beating heart. We love customers every single day. It's like, yes, I, I got all that. But meanwhile, I've got an EPS, you know, uh, uh, a ticker in the back office here. I, I really like to understand how it's going to impact earnings per share. And if you can show me that investments are going to yield high returns, I'll take that risk and I'll go down that path. What we've done is we've failed to be able to manage time shifting. Essentially, the problem is most of our expenses today are in the right now. Most of our customer benefits are in the future. Mm. And whenever you hear about something like that, you think, okay, this is a discounting problem. And I'm not talking about just strict mathematical discounting. I'm talking about mental discounting. Do I do something today that's PL unfriendly with a certain degree of assurance that something in the future is going to come back and pay me? And as humans, we're really bad at this, right? This is hyperbolic discounting. That donut looks awfully attractive right now. And I know sometime in the future, it's going to come back and it's going to bite me literally and figuratively in the ass. But I want it right now. And the short-term PL is a bit like that. So we need to persuade leaders that there is a high probability of future returns being so attractive that they are willing to make short-term financial hits and investments to do that. Now we have the constructs for that in finance. We're just not used to using them and getting, again, the data organized and making the persuasive case to do it. And look, at the end of the day, if management won't do that, if it's, if it's clear to them, you know, that, that's too bad. On the second part of the equation, getting people to change. I mean, essentially, it's a, it's always comes down to a leadership problem. Look, the most dynamic companies in the world aren't afraid to shake up their business. I always love, I know it's an old story, but I always love to imagine what it must have been like for Reed Hastings to have made the case to a bunch of Netflix executives that CDs, uh, sorry, DVDs are done. Right? You've got a company that's built around logistics, warehousing, shipping, DVDs, superb at it. They're all sitting around the table and Reed says, you know, that business is over. We're going completely digital. All the competencies you guys have, all the warehouses, all the staff, it's all over. We're going digital. Now, can you imagine the resistance to that? I mean, I can't imagine everyone said, good idea, boss. Great. Let's go. It had to be an enormous transformation. That's what people get paid the big bucks for, not just making the call that's right, but being having the courage to make the call and pushing it through against objections and uh, taking people a place that they don't necessarily want to go. Um, so that's going to be that's going to be a common characteristic. We need to give leaders better financially linked, clear business cases for making the right investments in customers and getting there. And I think they'll do it. And if they don't, then the business is going to be challenged. So, Richard, um, I was watching Highlander last night. Are you familiar with Highlander? A wonderful film. 
Excellent. <laughs> and um, they talk about the quickening, okay? So if you're unfamiliar with the, the movie, you've got Christopher Lambert. He's an immortal. He's being trained by Sean Connery, and the big fight is up against him and a wonderful character actor called Clancy Brown as the bad guy. And, you know, the quickening is when everything sort of comes together and, and the movie's going to climax and, you know, there, there will be one winner, okay? I, I sort of feel like we're in the quickening now with, with CX. Uh, you know, we have all, all this access to data. We have CDPs that are stitching, finally, you know, data on a one-to-one -one basis. I mean, are we at the point of, of a quickening where, you know, companies will be using you know, more, more data to, to, to be more predictive or at least react in, in a faster way? Um, and, you know, what industries might be doing it well today? Well, I, I hope that there isn't just going to be one survivor at the end. That would be, um, uh, but what I do think is, is, is I, what, what, I, what I do think is, is interesting about most industries now is there's a growing gap between those that are uh, outstanding at doing this and those that aren't. You know, if you look at financial services, and Megan, I think, mentioned uh, uh, financial services earlier. What's interesting is that fintech companies now have a cumulatively higher market capitalization than the entire set of traditional big retail banks. And so the market is saying these businesses are worth more and they're tiny than the entire cumulative market cap of the old businesses. Now we can sit there and you've reached a certain age where you kind of roll your eyes and, and you, you sort of look at Robinhood day trading and say, those pesky kids, what are they gonna get up to next? But the fact is, businesses that are based on real application of data, that are based on serving their customers in dramatically more effective fashions using that data, are the best for the future that the capitalist system, the stock market, says they want to place. And even if to some degree they're wrong about any one business, I don't know whether Robinhood's the future of trading, are they correct about the direction that this is going? And I think they have to be. And so you will see the leaders go forward and they're very dynamic. You'll see fast followers, some businesses that are well-established that wake up and go, we need to be good at this and they get there. And then you'll probably see about 50, 60% of the market just, just get stuck. Uh, now the good news is in some ways, uh, it's a bizarre thing to say, but COVID has been an absolute blessing for financial services. It's forced the banks to innovate in ways that they haven't for 20 years in the space of a year. And you talk to a lot of banking executives who will say, we got green lighted for more digital projects in, in a month than we had for the previous five years. We accelerated because it was suddenly an existential issue. We, we, we simply couldn't serve our customers anymore if we didn't get good at this. And so they were sort of, as opposed to being boiled to death slowly, they got a sudden shock, which was get with the program or you're out of business. And it really helped jolt them. And, and that quickening uh, is, is large due to COVID. I mean, let's, let's face it, the trajectory for digital business, I don't know when you want to market start. Uh, you know, Nicholas Necroponte at the MIT Media Lab wrote a book, Being Digital, what, 1989, 1991, right? And he pretty much called it all out. So we're into... 20, uh, uh, 30 years of a digital trajectory that's been writ large. But in the last 12 months, we've seen a faster acceleration than we have in, uh, in probably the prior decade. 
And that's going to really shake things up. It's going to be very exciting. And I have to say kudos for mentioning uh, Highlander because you know that's one of those cheesy cult films that just uh, like like its characters is immortal. It's a, a, endlessly watchable. All right, I admit, exactly. I've never actually seen it. Now I'm really embarrassed. I think I know what I'm watching later. <laughs> Highlander. Well, that's because Christopher Lambert went on to such a great career. Uh, <laughs> anyway, yes, you should watch it, Megan. It's 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 very it's a very it's a very cult uh, very cult movie. Um, but I do think, Colin, right back to your cult point. Yes, are we are we in a quickening? I think we're in a period of amazing opportunity. I think the paths are clear. Companies that have built up great digital capabilities and data capabilities are in a good place to capitalize. I think others are scrambling, um, but I don't think the game's over. You know, I think if you're in a cold start right now, okay, that's a that's a disadvantage. But um, you know, we we tend to exaggerate the way industry changes take effect, uh, how quickly they take effect. Let me tell you just one personal story. So, 1998. I was uh, running Dell.com, which was at the time very big e-commerce site relative to others. And you know, you're on the lecture circuit basically explaining e-commerce to people. And we said, well, retail's dead. Retail's over. It's obvious, right? Everyone's going to buy everything online. And people would say, how long is that going to take us? Oh, oh, gosh, five years, perhaps. Well, we were right directionally, but completely wrong about the time. And we tend to get this wrong when we forecast. And so I think businesses who think, oh, the game's up, probably are exaggerating the pace of change, um, but they're not missing the direction. And if you don't get on it and get going with it, when it does accelerate, you're, you're too late. I'm showing the animal cam just to emphasize the point that nothing in here was bought at, at a retail location. <laughs> this all came in, in boxes uh, via Amazon. Um, Megan, do you wanna bring us home? Yeah, well, Richard, um, first of all, thank you so much for joining us today. And we were excited to be able to chat with you and, and learn a little bit more about what you're seeing in the market. And to your point, I think we are at a really exciting moment when change is going to happen faster, but also in, I think, a more meaningful way. Um, I think we've all learned something over the course of the last year about what customers and what we as people truly need. And I think it's starting to infuse into the discussion of customer experience. So I'm excited to hear from you about how you're helping to make that change happen from, from where you sit. Um, and Colin, I'm really excited to listen to Adrenaline's new album. Um, and, uh, and hopefully that'll, uh, that'll inspire all of us as we go into our next week. But, um, but Richard, again, thank you. And Colin, I'll turn it back to you to to take us home. Um, yeah, well, uh, Richard, you've been great as always. Thanks for uh, agreeing to be on the show. And I hope you'll be back. Yeah, thanks very much. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. I, I, I'd, love to, I, I'd, lo I'd love to be, and just one final word, Colin, uh, based on what Megan said. We've spent the last 20, uh, 20 years trying to digitize humans. I think we're gonna spend a lot of the next decade trying to humanize digital. And that's, uh, that's pretty exciting. And I assume if a company needs help with that, they can call o OCX Cognition? Of course, correct assumption. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think we'll start with the outro music. And um, I think that's a wrap on another episode of Talking CRM. Thanks to all my guests and Megan Hewer, and we'll see you next time.